Thanks for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. Well, it has been a while since we have talked. Baseball is still stuck in their lockout, but we have some news to talk about, and I figured it was a good time to check in, say hi, see how you're doing. I'm Davey Barris, lifelong Cleveland baseball fan, and frankly, I would rather talk about so many different things right now than baseball. I would rather talk to you about the Cavaliers and the season they're having and why they need to add some scoring punch at the trade deadline and some help at the guard position. I would rather talk to you about Star Wars TV shows and the Book of Boba Fett and The Mandalorian because those TV shows are fantastic and I nerd out about Star Wars even harder than I nerd out about baseball. But unfortunately, I chose to do a baseball podcast here in Cleveland and Man, there's just not a lot of good stuff to talk about right now. The lockout drags on. Huge controversies over the Hall of Fame voting going on right now. The only positive I have for you is international free agent signings. And even that is kind of marred. In my opinion, it's kind of marred in a little bit of controversy. So we'll talk about it. Let's get into it. And uh, let's just spend some time talking baseball while they're still trying to figure out how to get baseball back on the field. So to start, let's talk about the Hall of Fame and the Hall of Fame controversy because David Ortiz is the only player voted in this year for the Hall of Fame. He got 77.9% of the votes and he gets into the Baseball Hall of Fame. Meanwhile, legendary players like Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, uh, in their final year of the vote, Sammy Sosa are all in off the ballot now. They did not receive entry. They are all off the ballot um, for the Hall of Fame. Uh, maybe a some other future committee would have the power to vote them in. But as far as the official votes go from the baseball writers, they're not getting in. Now, first off, I have to say that baseball Twitter has been just a disgusting place since this all went down. I mean, it is just the worst. I, I honest to God, would not be on Twitter if I was not trying to promote this podcast. If it wasn't an avenue to promote the podcast. It's, it really is just the most selfish, the most narrow-minded opinions. It, I can't believe... Some of the things, you can't tell the story of baseball if Barry Bonds isn't in the Hall of Fame. What a travesty that the greatest hitter of all time, I don't care how inflated his numbers are because of steroids, he still hit all those baseballs. And it's like, maybe there's some gray area there. Maybe there's a little bit of an ethical conversation we can have instead of just these defiant statements about how evil the baseball writers are for not voting Barry Bonds into the Hall of Fame. I even brought this conversation up with my wife at lunch yesterday because I wanted to get her opinion. She doesn't care about baseball at all, but I wanted to get her opinion on the ethical dilemma of voting for the Hall of Fame. And I explained the situation to her, and I got to be honest with you, she hates cheaters. And she was like, no, they don't belong in the Hall of Fame. They cheated. It seemed pretty clear to her. And you know what? I got to say, going over this in my head, listening to all the hot takes on Twitter that I could handle, I was listening to conversations, local conversations, national conversations. I listened to one between Costas and I think Rich Eisen. 
And I got to say, I still don't think these guys deserve to have their plaque in the Hall of Fame. Acostas had a great point. The Hall of Fame is a whole museum. There's a, I've never been to Cooperstown, but from what I hear, there's a whole museum there. And it does tell the story of baseball and all of Bond's accomplishments and Clemens' accomplishments and Pete Rose's accomplishments and Shoeless Joe Jackson's accomplishments are there, are on display in the story of baseball. But their plaques will not be hanging in the Hall of Distinction, right? The one room that you have to not only be a great player, but have played the game the right way to get in. Their plaques will not be there. And I don't think an asterisk is enough. I don't think a little plaque that says played during the steroid era or tested positive for steroids during their career is enough. I Yes, Bonds is the most prolific home run hitter ever in the history of the game of baseball. But he made a choice. Now, I know Bonds has actually never tested positive, right? They never caught him, but I think... I think it's all obvious to everybody who's watched baseball from the 90s through today that Barry Bonds at some point inflated his body with steroids, right? He got so jacked uh, in the middle of his career. And it's a shame that we would never know what those numbers would have been if they weren't inflated. We'll never know. And for that reason, he made a choice knowing that the ultimate consequence of that choice would be not getting into the Hall of Fame. And that's what happened. So the game of baseball will still be told. The story of baseball will still be told. There are books out there about Barry Bonds. There are books out there about the San Francisco Giants, about the steroid era. There are local Hall of Fames, right? The Cleveland Guardians, the Cleveland franchise has their Hall of Fame, and they can put who they want in it that tells the story of their team, right? If Omar Vizquel doesn't get into the Hall of Fame because he has some serious controversies around him now when it comes to domestic abuse, if he doesn't get into the Hall of Fame because of that, if Manny Ramirez doesn't get into the Hall of Fame because of his steroid allegations, they can still be talked about in the history of Cleveland baseball. So the story of the game will be told Do not worry about that. Just this room, this room where we honor the best of the best who did it the right way. And I know that there are people in there that cheated. There are terrible people in the Hall of Fame. But it is way too much to make the baseball writers not just the moral compass for the current day players, but to reflect throughout history and be the moral compass for history. That's too much. It's already too much asking them to be the moral compass. So the one thing that does bother me, the one thing that does bother me is the hypocrisy because David Ortiz did test positive throughout his career. And David Ortiz does have controversies throughout his career. And we all love David Ortiz. He's been a great ambassador for the game. He's a great personality. He has one of the greatest This Is Sports Center commercials of all time where he's trying on Jorge Posada's hat and the Red Sox uh, mascot catches him doing it. Yes. David Ortiz has been an impactful, important person in the game of baseball for the last 20-some years. But you're right. There is hypocrisy there because he did test positive at one point for steroids. And we don't know how inflated his numbers are because of steroids. But he was voted in. He got 77.9% of the vote. Bonds was next at only 66% of the vote 
in his final year on the ballot. So I agree that the hypocrisy is wrong, right? If you're going to not vote for a steroids guy, you got to be consistent with that. You got to commit to that. If guys did steroids, they don't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. Their story deserves to be told. In fact, I think that the Hall of Fame should have a permanent exhibit for the controversies of baseball, for the steroid era of baseball. Explain the whole thing so that when kids do go through the Hall of Fame, they understand the story of baseball completely, the dark side too. And uh, yeah, so Ortiz gets in, Bonds doesn't. And frankly, whatever your take is on Twitter, whatever your take is with your friends, it is an ethical question that should be discussed openly and freely. It should be a fun conversation. It should be an interesting learning conversation. It should not be, this is what I think. And if you feel like I went too far with my opinions, I, I would welcome conversation on this. You know the email address, clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Email in your thoughts about the Hall of Fame. And while we're talking about the Hall of Fame, there is a Cleveland player we have to talk about because it was the conversation in Cleveland circles around the Hall of Fame. And it was not Manny Ramirez and it was not Omar Vizquel. It was Kenny Lofton. Kenny Lofton fell off the ballot a few years ago because he didn't get 5% of the votes. And there are some Cleveland writers and some Cleveland fans that think this is just a travesty. And... I will agree that Kenny Lofton was one of the greatest players in Cleveland franchise history. The 90s Indians are not the 90s Indians without Kenny Lofton. In fact, for fun, the other day, YouTube Metrics totally nailed me and sent me like an hour-long special from MLB Network, I think it was 2017, about the 90s Indians, and it totally sucked me in. I was glued to that thing for an hour. And the story of Bell and Bayerga and Lofton and Alomar and Tomey and Vizquel, right? It's fantastic. And Dennis Martinez and Oral Hershiser. And Lofton is such a key part of that story and key part of the success of those teams. But he did not receive 5% of the vote and he didn't get in. And people are really upset about this. And I got to say, Lofton's numbers, his career numbers are pretty impressive. Uh, i was playing around a baseball reference a lot, and he's got a career war of 68.4. That is really great. He's got over 2,000, almost 2,500 hits. He's got 2,428 hits. Uh, stolen bases, you forget how good he led the league in stolen bases for five years in a row from 92 to 96. Um, he's got 622 career stolen bases, was only caught 160 times. He was a multi-time All-Star, runner-up for Rookie of the Year. In the MVP conversation, especially in 94, he was fourth in MVP voting. So yeah, this dude, Kenny Lofton, was huge in the 90s. And then the fact that he lasted until 2007 and came back and was on that ALCS team in 2007, what a story Kenny Lofton is here in Cleveland. But I think that's kind of the problem. Kenny Lofton was the story in Cleveland. Yes, he did go on and play in multiple, multiple cities um, throughout his career. He did one-year stops in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten different cities, plus the ten years he did in Cleveland. But I just don't think Kenny Lofton had as that big of an impact on the national stage, and you can see it from other players this year who also received less than 5% of the vote 
and dropped off the ballot, right? So I'm talking about Joe Nathan, Tim Hudson, Tim Lincecum, Ryan Howard, Mark Teixeira, Justin Morneau, Jonathan Pamplebont, Prince Fielder, A.J. Pruszynski, Carl Crawford, and Jake Peavy all received less than 5% of the vote and all will not be on future ballots. And there's a lot of people in those cities that probably feel like those guys deserve it, right? Um, I mean, I looked up Tim Hudson's stats, and this guy was one of the most dominant pitchers for Oakland and then for Atlanta. The guy had 222 wins for his career over 17 seasons. He accumulated 57.9 war, a 349 career ERA. Hudson was a 20-game winner for Oakland in the 2000 season, multi-time all-star, Tim Hudson was a really important pitcher. Anyone who played fantasy baseball in the 2000s knows how big Tim Hudson was. Um, any of those pitchers from Oakland at that time was a huge get. And he only got 3% of the vote, and he's going to fall off the ballot. So I know those Oakland fans and those Atlanta fans are going to be talking about Tim Hudson the way we talk about Kenny Lofton. Uh, I looked up Mark Teixeira. I mean, Mark Teixeira was a really impactful bat for Texas, and then eventually lands with the Yankees for a long time. He had 50.6 career war. He only had 1,862 hits, but 409 home runs. A big power hitter in his day, and he only ends up with uh, 1.5% of the vote. Justin Morneau. I mean, tell me that the people in Minnesota don't feel like Morneau and Maurer were the face of the franchise for multiple, multiple years. Surprisingly, Morneau only accumulated 27 war in his career, only had 1,600 hits and 247 home runs. So he definitely didn't have the numbers. But, I mean, he played in Minnesota from 2003 to 2013. And tell me that the fans in Minnesota today aren't saying Justin Morneau was the face of the Minnesota franchise for an entire decade and totally should be in the Hall of Fame. And he drops off with 1.3% of the vote. Ryan Howard, right, in Philadelphia. At one point, Ryan Howard probably was on pace to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, at one point, he was one of the most feared hitters in the entire game. Hits 58 home runs and 149 RBIs in 2006. Follows it up with 47, 48, 45 home runs. Multi-time All-Star. But he hit a wall in 2012 and injuries piled up. And it just wasn't the same. He just couldn't sustain it over his career. Only a 14.7 cumulative war for his career. 14, 1,475 hits, 382 home runs. So Ryan Howard falls off the ballot. So you can see how this conversation happens in a lot of cities. And I think Kenny Lofton's our guy. Our guy that we loved. We know how important he was. It just didn't reverberate on the national stage, um, you know, like some of these other guys, some of these other guys that might get in one day. Um, Billy Wagner's up there. Todd Helton were over 50% of the votes. Scott Rowland was at 63.2% of the votes. These are the guys that might be creeping into the Hall of Fame in the next few votes, but they got a long way to go. So, I don't know. I thought it was interesting that other names that fell off the ballot and the other conversations that other cities might be having about those players. All right. I told you um, the other bad news going on right now is the CBA. And apparently they are talking today. They're going to get together and talk today. 
I read a huge article on The Athletic this morning, and frankly, there is so much stuff left for them to discuss that it is going to take more than a day to get through all of it. Um, Ken Rosenthal and Evan Dralick had an article in The Athletic and kind of explaining all the different points and how far apart they are. The one thing I think is interesting is this pool of bonus money that they're discussing uh, right now for guys that are pre-arbitration and are super impact, whether it's war or whatever measurement they decide to ultimately use to say how impactful these guys are. Um, there are some players that could get some serious paydays that are pre-arbitration. But it's interesting that the money doesn't come from the team. The money comes from a pool amongst the owners, I'm assuming, right from Major League Baseball itself, which means Say Nolan Jones gets called up for the Indian for the Guardians this year. I apologize. I'm trying not to do it for the Guardians this year. And just absolutely crushes the Detroit Tigers, right? Every time he faces the Tigers, dude's going off. He ends up with a, you know, something like a three war, and it qualifies him for some bonus pool money. That means that the Tigers, who got beat up by Nolan Jones in this hypothetical all year, would have to chip in for the guy's bonus. Doesn't that seem crazy? Um, I mean, it's interesting. It's fascinating. But it seems a little strange that uh, it comes from a pool of money and not from the owners themselves. Not that the Guardians owners would have to pony up extra money for a guy who did really fantastic for them. I mean, that's what happens at work, right? If you're the employee of the year at work, or if you get employee of the month six times in a row and you get a big holiday bonus because of it, your bosses are paying that bonus for the work you've done for them. It's not like your competitor has to chip in and say, that guy crushed us this year in sales, so we're chipping in for his holiday bonus, right? That's not how it works. But in Major League Baseball, it might be, right? Uh, you know, imagine the Marlins having to chip in for Juan Soto's, you know, bonus pool money, right? Imagine the Yankees having to chip in for uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr.'s bonus pool money. That's the that's the plan they're talking about right now. So that'll be interesting. There is so much stuff. Minimum salaries, uh, luxury tax caps. There's so much. Again, it's millionaires and billionaires arguing about millions and billions of dollars. And we just want them to play baseball. We just want our sport back. We want our pastime back. So hopefully, I mean, the fact that they're talking, according to this, I mean, Rosenthal makes it seem like they're really far apart and that the start of spring training is pretty much pretty much in jeopardy at this point. The start of the season, eh, we'll see how they do over the next few weeks arguing this stuff out. But the fact that they're, they're actually talking at least is something. The fact that they're only talking once a week is kind of pathetic, but the fact that they're talking is finally something. And then the last bit of news that I wanted to talk about was the international free agent signings because the Guardians did get two big names in their international free agent signings. So keep an eye out for these names. Outfielder Jason Chorio and catcher Victor Isturez. Both of them uh, have relatives that have played Major League Baseball or were other international free agent signings. So they both are kind of legacy players. They both got the 1.2 million signing bonus 
from the Guardians' bonus pool of over $6 million. They did sign 15 total players, and many of them were shortstops because that is the Guardians' M.O. But a huge percentage of the Guardians' franchise is made up of these international signings. This is the way that the Guardians acquire talent, not necessarily through the actual MLB draft. Um, I think this article on Cleveland.com had it. I'm scrolling through it right now to find it, but something like over 20% of the current Guardians roster came from these international free agent signings. And these things are bizarre. I was reading a few other articles about these there was an article in USA Today about the handshake deals that are made with kids as young as 13, 12 years old to play one day for a major league team. And how sometimes these handshake deals are pulled away from these guys, right? When they become 16, 17 years old. These guys that we just signed are 16 years old. Can you imagine? Do you, I don't know if you have kids. I don't, you know. I don't know if you have teenagers yet or not, or if you had teenagers and they're grown up now. Could you imagine someone coming to you and saying, look, your 12-year-old has got some skill. We are going to pay this kid. If he sticks with the Cleveland Guardians for the next four years, we are going to pay this kid some serious money, and he's going to be in our Guardians franchise. Could you imagine that at 12 years old? Doesn't something about that sound feel a little bit wrong to you? That's kind of the system right now. They've talked about instituting an international draft. Frankly, I feel like that would be a little less uh, shady than what's happening down there right now. Now, there's other sides to this, right? The Guardians built, uh, this was an article back in 2019, uh, they built this huge baseball academy in the Dominican Republic. And this thing has a lot of you know, benefits to the young people down there, right? It seems like they're doing things the right way and giving them the right resources down there um, and getting away from these handshake agreements that leave some families, you know, flat in debt. They actually go into debt assuming they're going to get these big paydays, which is not advised, but they do. And, um, you know, it becomes a real problem down there. Uh, so, yeah, the international baseball system. It'll be interesting to see how that is changed, how that landscape changes over the next few CBAs, over the next few years. Um, so yeah, not that there's any huge controversy to this, but when you hear kids as young as 12 years old are getting handshake agreements and then eventually signing with a team at 16 years old for $1.2 million, I mean, it's mind-blowing that that's the system, right? That's the system we all agree on. But the good news, I guess, if you're a Guardians baseball fan, is a lot of good players have come out of this system, and it sounds like we have a really good outfielder and a really good catcher in the system now. So it's going to be years until you see these guys possibly play in Cleveland. But those are two names to keep an eye out for, Jason Chirillo and Victor Isturiz. All right, that is all my thoughts on this Cleveland baseball morning. Thanks for joining me. I hope you didn't mind my rant about the Hall of Fame. Again, so many things we'd rather be talking about right now. But baseball has put us in this situation where the entire sport is on hold. So go check out some Star Wars TV shows on Disney+. Go check out a Cavs game because they are really fun right now and they should have two All-Stars. We'll see if they make it as reserves, but they should have two all-stars and garland and allen on that team 
that is all my thoughts. You can follow me on Twitter, unfortunately, on Twitter, at Davey Barris. I'll probably tweet more once baseball season comes back. You can email the show at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation about the ethics of the Hall of Fame, email me at clevelandbaseballmornings at gmail.com. Let me know your thoughts. We'll discuss them on the show. Also, I'm hosting this podcast on Anchor. So if you go to anchor.fm forward slash Cleveland Baseball Mornings, if you're so worked up, you can leave a voicemail for the show. We'll play it back in the air, respond to your thoughts, and we'll have a fun conversation amongst the fans about baseball. I know we'll get back to actual conversations about actual games soon. That's what this show was built on. But until then, thanks again for joining me on this Cleveland Baseball Morning. Baseball Morning.